from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, September 6th. Today on the podcast, New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, for her latest monthly visit to the live call-in show, will be talking about her actions around the big influx of asylum seekers to New York and other cities, also the prospect for a government shutdown at the end of this month, with House Republicans wanting to attach things like a Biden impeachment inquiry to a bill to keep the government running. And you'll hear some challenging questions from our callers. Senator, we always appreciate that you do this. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks, Brian. On the asylum seekers, I see you're working on a bipartisan bill with Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Want to start there? Sure. Um, Obviously, our immigration system is broken. And as a result, um, we are doing everything we can in New York to solve a very significant humanitarian crisis. And so a lot more needs to be done. Um, First of all, the federal government should be um, working very hard to provide resources uh, for New York, since this is not a problem they've caused themselves. Uh, And so the Senator Schumer and I have been working very hard on that. We got about um, $800 million uh, to address these concerns, and about $140 million went to New York. Um, New York spent much more than that, so we are hoping to get more resources. Um, We're also working, I'm working very hard on a number of pieces of legislation, and we're trying to get Republican members of of the New York House delegation, we have 11 of them, to focus on how we can do bipartisan common sense legislation to begin to solve the problem. These are all laws that were created by the federal government. Um, We have the power of the purse. And so Congress has to do their job and actually legislate. But we need Republican allies in the House who are willing to do the work. Um, So one idea is to uh, make sure that we have TPS status for the people that are coming, temporary protective status that would let them work faster Um, I have the bill to change the amount of time people have to work to start working once they've filed their asylum claim, that they can work in 30 days as opposed to 180 days. That would help a lot. Um, And we want to ask the federal government to help more with support centers, uh, to use the support centers that we created for the Afghan refugees to be used for all refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and those are just a couple of ideas. Mm-hmm. But um, I have other legislation to just change the immigration courts. We don't have enough. Uh, we need, uh, I, I have legislation to make Title I courts. So it's not just in the hands of the administration, but that we can have congressionally created courts. I also have legislation to increase the number of lawyers so they can actually adjudicate these cases. These asylum claims are taking two years, three years in some cases, uh, far more than the law requires. And so we need more lawyers and more judges to do that. Um, And so I think we just have to work on a bipartisan basis to get it done. We need comprehensive immigration reform. And one of the bipartisan ideas was uh, that of Bill Cassidy's, and he wants to work with me to right-size immigration. We have the same number of visas that we've ever had, 675,000 over the last several years. And apparently, we don't even use all those visas every year because the processing is not effective. So if we right-size immigration, increase the number of visas for different types of workers where we're desperate, ag workers, healthcare workers, uh, restaurant workers, uh, tourism and hotel workers, maybe you can do industry by industry because we have 200,000 unfilled jobs in New York right now that I can tell you a lot of employers would love to fill if they could do so legally. And so these are our challenges. It's a huge 
huge, huge challenge. But we need people of goodwill from both sides of the aisle, especially Republicans who aren't coming to the table to solve this problem. On the length of time that people have to be here for a work authorization, uh, you said it's currently 180 days, six months. You want the government to make it um, 30 days so they can start supporting themselves more quickly. I know that's a major priority of Mayor Adams as well. Have you asked President Biden to do that with an executive order? Does Biden have the authority to do that with an executive order? When I've talked to people in the, yes, I've asked, I've asked many times, um, they have said they don't have the legal authority to do it, that the law as written requires 180 days and that it requires an act of Congress to change the law to reduce it to 30 days. Um, I don't know if there's any emergency power that the president has that can change that. I, the people from the White House I've spoken to have said they don't. Um, so we're going to ask for other types of help. Um, we can ask for a whole of government solution. We can ask Homeland Security, DOJ, DHS, State Department um, to all work together, uh, HHS, um, on meeting these asylum claims quickly, uh, getting more lawyers to do the work, asking DOG, DOJ to increase the number of immigration courts, asking them to whole of government surge of lawyers. So at least we can review these cases quickly and those who do not qualify for asylum can be sent home. Uh, and those who do qualify asylum can work because we have worker shortages in all these industries, as I mentioned. So I've, I spent the all of August traveling across New York. Um, I did a bunch of rural counties. And when I talked to people who worked on farms, who worked at breweries, who worked in hotels, all of them said they had a worker shortage. So if we could fix our immigration system, we can right-size immigration and people can be working, which means they will not need the support of shelters and food assistance. They'll be able to pay their own bills, pay their taxes, pay into Social Security as they wait for their asylum claim to be determined. The people that are here are seeking asylum. That is a law that has been in place since the 80s that would need to be changed if people do not want people coming here or seeking asylum. But we are a generous and a thoughtful country that cares about humanitarian crisis. For those people who say they are Christians, we welcome the stranger, we help people, and it's part of who we are as a nation. And our immigration history and the richness of the cultures and the people that have come here over many hundreds of years that's what makes our country so great. So we should not turn our back on who we are, but we should fix the system so it works properly. I want to get a reaction from you to a clip we're going to play now of Vice President Pence praising Mayor Adams on a conservative talk show on Monday on WABC Radio here in New York. Here's Mike Pence. You know what? I got to do a hat tip to the mayor of New York who's been willing to call out President Joe Biden and his administration for their absolute failure to secure the southern border of the United States. So how much do you agree with a the sentiment there, Senator Gillibrand, or even the characterization of asking Biden to control the border in a different way? So I think that is a perfect example of cynical politics. Obviously, um, that's Mike Pence. He's running for president. And uh I don't think the problem is President Biden. I think the problem is our immigration laws have not been updated in a very long time. We had a comprehensive immigration bill in the Senate 10 years ago, and the House Republicans refused to act on any of it. 
Um, even most recently, the Republicans in the House gutted all the funding that we give to states for emergency basis like this. Gutted all the funding. So that funding would go to red states like Texas. It would go to blue states like New York, places where we're having surge of migrants. They're just literally abdicating all responsibility and putting their heads in the sands. Mike Pence did next to nothing to solve the immigration crisis when he was vice president. So I don't think his words have any weight. I think he is someone who is just trying to get elected. Well, the lead line on the New York One story on this said, U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand said hundreds of thousands of migrants showing up at the U.S. border is both dangerous and unmanageable. Is that a fair description of your position? I do think it's very unmanageable at this point. Um, You can just ask the mayor, ask the governor. They're working 24-7 to do everything they can um, to solve the problem. Um, they are working overtime to solve the problem. They're asking for support. They're asking for resources. And so we need to solve the problem. Unfortunately, we don't have power in Congress, in the House of Representatives. And right now, McCarthy and the ultra conservatives there just want to make it worse because they want this political point. They want to be able to use this in elections. We have 11 Republicans in the New York delegation. Any one of them could be co-sponsoring my legislation to solve this problem, and they're not. So they are not looking for solutions or answers, and they just want the problem to grow so that they can use it politically. It's very cynical, and it's not Christian, and it's not something that reflects who we are as a nation and the generous nature of our country and the ability we've always had to bring disparate people from across the globe to make our economy stronger, to make our society richer, and to make our communities fuller. Well, one more follow-up, kind of on what you were just saying, that I guess the Republicans would argue, the law requires that anyone presenting themselves as an asylum seeker must be admitted, but 90% or so of asylum cases, from what I've read, get denied as being really about desire to move here, but no real threat of political retribution or other things that the asylum laws are supposed to actually cover. So do you think that many migrants are abusing the asylum system and it should be enforced differently or written differently in some way? It needs to be adjudicated on a timely basis. And so this is one of the things I'm going to ask of the Biden administration to increase the number of immigration courts that the DOJ has available and increase the number of lawyers that are surged to do this work now. Because our laws are are very generous. We, we welcome people who are refugees from around the globe. We have refugee communities all across New York right now that are thriving. Uh, We welcome asylum seekers who are undergoing horrible conditions in their countries, whether it's because of natural disaster, whether it's because of collapse in government, whether it's because of fear of their lives um, or discrimination. But those are specific standards. And I I wouldn't say that they're trying to um, get away with something. I don't think people understand what the asylum law in the United States says. That's why when they come here, they file and they're supposed to get a lawyer to adjudicate their claim. So I wouldn't demonize the migrant who's trying to just get a better life for their families because they're in abject poverty or there's gangs running their country or their government has collapsed. That's what's happening in a lot of these South American countries and a lot of these Central American countries. They're leaving places that are not livable. 
But we have laws, and so our laws require that you go through a process and a judge determines if you meet the, the qualifications. If you don't meet the needs of those qualifications, then you will be sent home, period. And if Republicans and Democrats believe that the number of legal immigrants in this country should be higher, that's the kind of bipartisan work we should be doing, and we should be using all those visas. And as I said earlier, we have worker shortages in many industry groups, and it would be very helpful if we could right-size immigration, have the right number of visas for the right number of people that we need across the, across the country in different industries. And that's the kind of bipartisan stuff that you're supposed to do in comprehensive immigration reform. But again, we have no partners. We have no Republican partners who want to do this work with us in the House of Representatives, and that's a problem. So I will work with the White House to do the few things that they do have the authority to do, improve our immigration courts, um, have TPS status for Venezuelans particularly because about 40% of these migrants are from Venezuela. And what's happening in Venezuela is terrible. There is a government collapse. It's a disaster. There's lots of things happening there that are very, very horrible. Um, and then have a whole of government response so that DOJ is working with DHS and working with HHS and working with State Department to solve these problems, use some of these welcome centers that we've used so effectively for Afghan refugees and Ukrainian refugees for all, all asylum seekers. So we just have better government, more efficient. So I'm going to work on those small things with the White House, and then I'm going to keep pitching my bipartisan legislation to get Republicans to help solve the problem. We need Republicans of goodwill to meet us halfway. Desiree in Park Slope. You're on WNYC with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Hi, Desiree. Good morning. Um, so I feel like there's a bit of magical thinking when it comes to what having a work visa is going to do for new migrants. I fully support New migrants being supported in New York City, I am happy that my tax dollars can help in any way. But minimum wage jobs are not going to get uh, housing for new migrants. We already have a housing crisis where people who make well above the minimum wage can't afford to live in New York City. So I'm trying to understand how the mayor and how the senators think that getting new migrants a work visa to do service work um, is going to magically allow them to afford an apartment. Thank you, Desiree. Senator? So there's two problems that you've raised, Desiree. One, we have an affordable housing crisis in the entire country, and so I have a lot of legislation to incentivize development of affordable housing across our state, across the country. Um, in New York City, for example, we have a lot of commercial buildings that are empty right now. I want to create an incentive um, and a uh, support for conversion. Um, they tried to do that in the legislature. The legislation didn't get passed because there was problems that they needed to work through. But I'm going to try to find federal support for changing a lot of our um, current uh, commercial properties to residential. Um, they'll, they'll, certain waivers will be required. Certain resources will be required. But I'm going to work on that because I do – I do appreciate how severe our affordable housing shortages in our state and our city. Um, you're making an assumption that migrants that are coming are all low-wage workers, and you're making an assumption that they're all going to be minimum wage workers. That is not a fair assumption. You have people coming with, with medical degrees, with training in all sorts of industries, and post-COVID, a lot of these jobs are no longer minimum wage jobs. Um, we've found that a lot of industries to compete for workers have had to increase wages to just get workers. 
So I wouldn't assume that they're all going to be the lowest wage worker because that's just not the reality of who people are that are coming to this country for help. And that's why I really want to do an industry specific. I think we could get um, you know, we have a nursing shortage in this country. We have a teacher shortage in this country. We have um, shortages in agriculture workers, um, child care workers, uh, assisted living um, facility workers. These are some of these jobs are very highly trained jobs. Um, so we're hoping we can solve our uh, crisis with um, open jobs that can't be filled. Uh, and solve an immigration crisis at the same time. But it takes thoughtful, bipartisan leadership that um, I just am going to work very hard to develop. Um, I have several Republicans I'm working with on a number of the bills I discussed today. But we need our House delegation to care and to start working on it, all of them. And there's 11 of them. Senator, new topic, the potential for a government shutdown at the end of this month, which is the end of the federal fiscal year. Are you concerned about House Republicans forcing Senate Republicans into something? So I, I, my sense is that the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans are at odds. Um, Senator McConnell and Senator Schumer are working well and have a, already have uh, the entire appropriations ready to go. They have 12 different bills done. Um, not surprising, two women senators got that done. Uh, Susan Collins and Patty Murray are the chair and ranking members of the Appropriations Committee, and they've gotten all 12 bills done. So we are ready to go. We want to govern. We have a budget. We have a budget for every area of the federal government ready to go. But the challenge is, is that McCarthy does not have control of his delegation. He's got conservative right-wing members who, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who have said, I will not vote for anything until I have an impeachment proceeding, um, trying to hold the entire Congress hostage, uh, that kind of irresponsible uh, behavior is very damaging. And we've had government shutdowns in the past, and none of them have gone well. Um, The CBO estimated that the five-week partial government shutdown in 2018 to 2019 reduced the nation's economic output by $11 billion for the following two quarters, including $3 billion that the U.S. economy never regained. Um, Moody's said that in the 2013 full government shutdown, it reduced the GDP, which is the gross uh, gross domestic uh, produce, by $20 billion. So um, that's pretty severe. It doesn't go well for us, and it hurts people. It hurts people's ability to get access capital. It hurts people's ability to um, – something as simple as getting a passport doesn't get done. Like, it's from severe to um, small, but it's never good. And it's really, again, cynical politicians that think their way of the highway is more important than keeping our government up and running. Leslie in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with Senator Gillibrand. Hi, Leslie. Thank you for taking this call. I am a nurse. Actually, I'm a retired nurse, so that gives you an age frame reference. I do not understand why um, clearly there are two senators that are currently serving in the Senate that are impaired. Okay? That was my casual observation. I do not understand why. Are you talking we about Feinstein not... and McConnell, just to be clear? Yes. Go and ahead. Um, I, one of my questions are 
I don't understand why we don't have mandatory retirement. And the other dirty word is why don't we have term limits? I understand that all of our representatives are voted on by the people, but there is so much lobbying going on. There is so much holding on to the job until I get a better offer that we have a totally dysfunctional government. Leslie, thank you. Senator? So, um, a couple of issues. Um, you know, I I really admire um, Senator Feinstein, and I work extremely well with her, and I work very well with her on the Intel Committee in particular. And my heart goes out to Senator McConnell um, as he wrestles with his health concerns. Um, we have never um, had an age requirement in the Senate, um, and I don't think we ever will. Um, that's what elections are for. States are supposed to decide which senators they want to send to Washington to represent them. Um, but I have thought long and hard about this idea of term limits, and I'm not opposed to term limits. Uh, I like the idea of term limits. I, I tend to think that people do need a level of seniority and experience to get good at their jobs. I've, I've seen myself improve in how I can deliver for New York over the last 14 years I've been in the Senate. I got almost every bill I've ever written past last Congress, and some of them took 10 years, some of them took five years, some took 12 years. I mean, it's it's all different. It takes time to get things done. But I do see some merit in term limits, and I see merit in term limits for everybody, um, especially the Supreme Court, um, as a way to depoliticize them. I would give them, you know, a 20-year term limit. I think Congress could have similar term limits. Um, 18 years in the Senate might work. Um, maybe 18 years in the House might work. That's a lot of time to get good at your job, to become a chairman, to get things done. But um, I'm working with Senator Ted Cruz on this right now, which uh, I know is he's very conservative, but he likes the idea of term limits. Um, but I really think it should apply to all these massive positions of power um, long term. Now, the other side of the argument is very simple. Um, that's what elections are for, and that's a legitimate argument. That's a smart argument. If the voters want somebody in for 25, 30 years, we have examples of really great senators that have been in for more than three terms. Um, senator Schumer, for example, I can't think of a more effective, better senator than Senator Schumer. Um, and so those are legit arguments, too. Um, but for the two senators that you mentioned, it's up to them and their families about when they step down. And I appreciate both of their dedication to serving. And I would never tell somebody they have to leave. Um, is, the voters this, can do it and their families can help them. Is this new for you, supporting term limits? I haven't heard you say it before. Maybe I just never heard it. Is this new for you? Not new, not new. I've been thinking about it for a long time and seeing if I can find some good bipartisan consensus around it. Um, I've specifically been going to think much more about it with regard to the Supreme Court, because we've talked about how to depoliticize the Supreme Court, and I think adding justices isn't going to work. We, first of all, let's say we said, let's add three justices. Well, we couldn't fill three justices um, in time to not have them go to McConnell to fill. So it doesn't help us depoliticize the court. Uh, but something like term limits might depoliticize the court. So these justices would know you only have 20 years to do this. So you know, don't screw around, do it well and, and, and create, create a, mm -hmm. a record for yourself. And, you know, typically what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So I've just been thinking a lot more about it. I just don't know if there's any will behind it. Probably not. But um, I'm certainly thinking about the merits of it. 
One more question from a listener before we run out of time, and we'll take this one from a text message that somebody wrote to us. Question for Senator Gillibrand. It says, an underlying issue that seems to undermine citizens' trust in government is the belief that government officials are corrupt. Have bills been introduced to address the dangers of corruption? The most obvious era, uh, area is the revolving door between government and K Street, the lobbyist community. If corruption is widely perceived as a problem in governance, why have there been no bills introduced in Congress to combat it? What do you say to that listener? So I share the listener's concern that people worry that Congress is bought and paid for. Um, I have two things that I've worked on to change that. Uh, one, I'd love to get money out of politics. I believe in publicly funded elections. I think uh, that would change who gets elected overnight, and it would change the influence that the moneyed interests of the United States have over members of Congress, uh, whether you're talking about the oil industry or the NRA or Big Pharma. Those influences are real and significant in many places. So getting money out of politics would make it less easy for those industries to just pay for campaigns and pay for advertising and to influence the outcomes by doing independent ads and um, doing independent organizing like the NRA does. Um, so that's one point, and, I, and I'm going to keep fighting for that. Um, the second point is the members of Congress that get rich quick on non-public information. About 10 years ago, I passed a law called the Stock Act um, that told members of Congress they had to actually disclose all their purchases of, of stock um, regularly because there had been no prosecution of any members of Congress on insider trading. And so I wanted to make it clear that, yes, insider trading laws apply to members of Congress to the non-public information they receive in their jobs, and that with disclosure, we would give the DOJ the authority and the ability to prosecute members who were buying and selling stock based on non-public information. That didn't really come to fruition. And 10 years later, what we're seeing now is one in three members of Congress are trading stocks. One in seven are not failing to properly report those stock trades. Um, 97 members of Congress, their spouses or dependents who traded companies affected by their committees from 2019 to 2021. 3,700 stock trades reported by members of Congress from 2019 to, to 2021 that hmm. potentially posed conflicts of interest. And this is the kicker. 17.5% is the average amount by which Congress's stock portfolios outperformed the S&P 500 in 2022. So do you think 17.5% increase is because members of Congress are smarter? Or do you think they are getting access to non-public information that is affecting their trades? Probably the latter. So that's why I have a bill right now with Josh Hawley, another conservative Republican, to ban stock trading by members of Congress, their spouses, and their minor oh, children. Ban it altogether. Ban it altogether, since we're clearly not good at disclosure, um, and include the senior federal officials um, as well from um, from the administration. So both senior um, White House and uh, administrative officials and members of Congress, all of their spouses and minor kids banned. So that bill, I think, answers the need of this perception that people have and perhaps reality that members of Congress are not serving the public first, they're serving themselves first. And this legislation would go a long way to fixing that perception. 
our monthly Call Your Senator segment with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Senator, we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you. Take care. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.